This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Last week, we heard from a roundtable of Jewish Americans who shared their stories about Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel and what impact the conflict is having on them. Hamas killed more than 1,400 people in its attack, according to Israeli officials. In Gaza, almost 5,800 people have died so far in Israel's retaliatory bombing, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. So today, we'll hear from Palestinian Americans. These are things that the collective Muslim population sees and sees that the world doesn't do anything about or care about. And, you know, then it makes us feel very abandoned. But when an entire people are oppressed or victimized in so many ways for so long, it's bound to happen that certain actions are going to act out. I do recognize that many of Israel's actions through its 75-year history are born out of a deep sense of past cultural trauma. Israelis must recognize, though, that they, as well, have imposed a deep cultural trauma upon all Palestinians through their ongoing military invasion. I ask, how can Israelis, who have been so traumatized by their own persecution, then go on to inflict such trauma upon another innocent people, the Palestinians? The solution to end the violence really lands on the Israeli leadership to end the illegal occupation, granting them the ownership and control of land, the dignity of human rights, and the ability to have political control as well as control of the future of their children and their families. Those were On Point listeners Rami Jabber from Monroe Township, New Jersey, Lawrence Kamar from Portland, Oregon, and Rahil Khan from Sacramento, California. Well, now joining me, we have a roundtable of Palestinian Americans. Leila Farsak is with us. She's a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and she joins me in the On Point studio. Professor Farsak, welcome. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Philip Farah. He's an economist at the United States Government Accountability Office. He's retiring at the end of the month. He's also founding member of the Washington Interfaith Alliance for Middle East Peace and a co-founder of the Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace. Philip, welcome to you. Thank you, Magna. And with us as well is Leila El-Haddad. She's an award-winning author and journalist and author of Gaza Mom, Palestine Politics, Parenting, and Everything in between. Leila, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Magna. And I do appreciate all of you uh, for joining us at this time. And Leila, I'm wondering if we could start with you, actually, uh, because you, you're, you, still, you have family members right now in Gaza, is that correct? That's right. I have over 100 family members uh, scattered across uh, the Gaza Strip. About half of them right now are in Gaza City, the sort of most hard-hit uh, area. And um, we're trying our best to stay in touch. I've lost touch with a third of the family in central Gaza. We haven't heard from them. And I keep checking the rosters of those that were killed by, by Israel to check if their names are on there. The ones in the city, we are maintaining contact through uh, cell phones. They charge uh, using car batteries. They've lost all power. Israel's cut off their water supply. Uh, it's uh, it's it's difficult all around. They've had flyers dropped on their uh, on their house by the Israeli army, telling them that if they don't um, voluntarily self-displace and leave, uh, they will be considered accomplices to uh, to terror organizations. So this is the kind of sort of psychological and 
terror that's being unleashed on them right now. Um, and they're, they're standing strong. They're trying their best to just, uh, you know, survive and, and, um, and stay sane mm-hmm. right now. And we're trying to help them through that and help amplify their voices as well. And, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more um, about how the family members that you've been able to stay in touch with are surviving through the bombardment and, uh, you know, the the blockade of uh, of of supplies. I'll note that just over the weekend, a few trucks started uh, being allowed to come in. But when you say that people are having to, family members are having to um, charge <clears throat> their cell phones off car batteries. What about eating, drinking, things like that? Yeah, I mean they they will. <clears throat> if they were sitting here right now with us, they might say that there are limits to the humanitarian discourse and that. Ultimately, this is not about food, though, of course, that is an important part of the story because, you know, it bears mentioning that I I don't know of another instance in the modern world where, you know, so-called democratic countries have stood up and and brazenly called for the collective punishment of a civilian population um, by depriving them of food, fuel, water, life's basic necessities and our government here going right along with that plan. So I think the question isn't how many trucks are coming in or what food they might have right now, but why are we allowing them to turn the water off in the first place and prevent uh, the entry of fuel and, and vital humanitarian supplies? I think that's that's the real story. In terms of how they're surviving, to answer your question, they, they're basically down to canned foods right now. They've they're eating stale bread that they managed to get a bag of bread about a week ago before the bakeries shut down and, and several, the only bakery near them was bombed actually by the Israeli army. Um, they toasted that bread over an open fire and they've been eating that sort of hard pieces of bread with some canned foods and uh, lentils. Um, but again, they keep emphasizing it's not about the food. What mm. good will food do us if we are killed by the Israelis? Mm. Um. One more question for you, Leila, and then Philip and, and Professor Farsak. I promise I'll come to both of you. Uh, how are you, Leila, thinking through this or, or trying to, to process and cope with um, what has happened and what is happening, especially as you continue to fear for your family's well, lives? It's a lot. It's a he- heavy burden to bear. Um, this is not the first time Gaza has been uh, uh, bombarded, assaulted, obviously, which which speaks to the fact that this doesn't begin and end um, with Hamas. This does not begin and end with, with the current onslaught on Gaza. But there is a certain urgency to being able to deliver the message, to amplify the voices of my family, to put an end to the killing. And so there is no rest right now. We're kind of in survival mode. And I think most Palestinians with family in Gaza feel the same way. Um, I can speak personally that I'm sort of dividing my time between checking in on my family, uh, looking over my own shoulder to make sure I'm okay and I'm a visible Muslim. I wear a headscarf along with my daughter, um, you know, speaking to the media about what's happening. and um, and mainly, though, mainly, and I think um, this is the most exhausting part, trying to justify our humanity uh, to the world and explain why we uh, and our people don't deserve to be killed. This is this is what I'm spending the most amount of time doing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Philip, let me turn to you, and I would love to hear your thought, your same answer or your answer to the same question about how you've been 
feeling, how you've been trying to think through everything that's happened uh, since October 7th? Well, it's a feeling of, uh, frankly, oscillating between extreme outrage and extreme sadness. Um, uh, I have family in Gaza, mm -hmm. like uh, Leila does, and uh, I've been trying to check on them. Um, of course, communication is very bad, as uh, Leila has explained. Uh, one relative, um, he finally responded, he's safe, but he reported that his uh, uncle um, died when a bomb uh, exploded next to his house and he had a heart attack and passed away. Uh, his name is Faiz Jashan. And uh, um, my family originated in Gaza, although I grew up in Jerusalem. I immigrated at the age uh, of 27 to the United States. Uh, but my family's life uh, uh, centered around uh, the St. Prophyrius Church uh, that was bombed uh, recently. 18 people were killed. Um, some of them are relatives. The Suri family was completely exterminated. Um, does not exist anymore in Gaza. Um, I was unable to reach any of my relatives uh, who were uh, survivors at the St. Prophyrius Church, um, where, you know, the church where my dad and uncles and aunts uh, and grandparents uh, uh, were baptized and uh, had their weddings and celebrated. And uh, one of them uh, is called Suleiman Tarazi. Suleiman Tarazi, um, his house was uh, bombed. Uh, he emerged from the rubble. He was lucky enough to emerge from the rubble. He, uh, like uh, all the Christians in Gaza, are now at churches, uh, especially St. Prophyrius and uh, uh, the Orthodox um, uh, Sh Good Shepherd uh, Church. And uh, so he moved uh, along with mm. all his family members to that church, and um, he was uh, killed in that bombing. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine. And uh, frankly, uh, the Christian community is uh, somewhat privileged, you know. Uh, I tell you, I mean, I'm a, a Palestinian from Christian background, but and, and we have it somewhat better than uh, Muslims because, you know, there's frankly racism. There's utter racism towards all Palestinians, all Arabs, but especially towards Muslims. And um, um, so, you know, things are far worse mm. for, uh, for, for people who are um, refugee, refugees in refugee camps, which are the 70% of the population of Gaza. Mm, okay. Well, I just want to uh, note that, uh, that indeed, um, the Israeli military did say that uh, last Thursday, the the blast that that damaged or destroyed the Saint Porphyrius Greek Orthodox Church was a result of an Israeli airstrike. The Israeli military did indeed um, acknowledge that. Uh, Professor Farsak, you know, we've only got a, less than a minute before our first break, um, so I'll promise to give you a, a bigger, a larger chance to speak after that break, but. If you could choose a word right now about what your what's been going through your mind or your mindset has been over the past couple of weeks, what would it be? Uh, despair and uh, determination to speak and tell our stories. As Leila said, uh, it's our humanity, the hardest 
part is to prove our humanity and we don't need to prove it because we're all equal human beings and war is not justified and the genocide going on is petrifying. Well, this hour we're sitting down and listening to a roundtable of Palestinian Americans and we'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're listening to a roundtable of Palestinian Americans. I'm joined by Leila El-Haddad, Philip Farah, and Professor Leila Farsak. Last week we heard from a roundtable of Jewish Americans, and if you missed that program, you can listen to it at our website, onpointradio.org, or in our podcast feed. And Professor Farsak, last week from... Um, our, the, our Jewish American guests, we heard a great deal about um, the need to understand the context of um, uh, Jewish lives in in Israel and how that connects to the families of Jewish of Jewish Americans, both there and here. And the context is, of course, very very old. The same goes for understanding um, the place that Palestinians are and pa- Palestinian Americans find themselves. So I wonder if you might tell us. Um, or deepen the understanding of your particular context, because you've written about how you, how your father, you, you say that he um, saw Palestine get lost twice. What did you mean by that? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. My father was born in 1934, and what I mean by that is that uh, the first time we have an expression "we lost Palestine" was in 1948, uh, when Israel was created and it expelled two thirds of the Palestinian population at the time from its homeland, which uh, many of them are now the descendant uh, living in Gaza. That's something you need to understand. So the context for the Palestinian is that this war has not started on the 7th of October, has not started 17 years ago when Israel put the Gaza Strip under siege. It started in 1947-48 when Israel got created and expelled the Palestinians. So we are coming from that context and what is very scary and problematic is that we many thought that with the peace process that started in 1993, we could come to an end to this suffering uh, that Palestinians and Israeli can live side by side in, in, in two states. And what has happened over the past 30 years is that the Palestinian has seen that their possibility of creating a state has dwindled and been fragmented because of Israeli settlements policy. Uh, people forget there are 750,000 settlers today in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which is 
tripled their size in 1993. They fragment the West Bank. Uh, they, uh, Israel has direct control over uh, 60% of the West Bank, has put the Gaza Strip under siege. And uh, I think that's something that we keep wanting to emphasize, that we are not just in a humanitarian crisis, we are in a political crisis. Mm. I think what Leila has said is very important. We're not here just to prove our humanity and, and make our voices heard, but also to explain that the problem is not just about getting people some... Gaza is not a humanitarian problem, it's a political problem. Mm-hmm. And Gaza is a microcosm of the problem that we live. But on a personal level, it's been hard because my father, you know, Okay, in 48, he, he saw the refugees coming into his town. He lived in the West Bank. In 67, he was not allowed to be back home. In 94, he came back and thought, okay, I can settle and live there in peace. But then there's, you know, the more Israeli incursions, more Israeli settlements, more checkpoints. So he got his wish, which was to die there. Uh, but... What is very hard uh, is to see this continuous assault on the Palestinian mm. by fragmenting them. Israel is trying to fragment them and dilute the question and reduce the question to a humanitarian crisis. And I think what we see in front of our, our eyes right now is that this is not just a humanitarian crisis. This is a political crisis. Yeah. So since you put it that way, um, help help us understand the, the, the different layers of this political crisis. And, and Philip and, and Leila El-Haddad, I want to hear responses from you on this very <coughs> specific question as well. Because, um, yes, looking across that 70-plus year history, you, you clearly see that, that um, this is a profound political crisis. At the same time, there have been moments when... Um, partial responsibility has rested on the shoulders of Palestinian leadership, right? Correct. In terms of not being able to resolve the political crisis. I'm thinking of when Arafat and the PLO walked away from or or could not come to an agreement in or around 2000 or 2000-ish about... Uh, at Camp David. Yeah, yeah at Camp David. Um, you know, in looking at the history of Hamas, it, uh, we were looking at uh, its uh, original founding charter and, and um, then the subsequent charters. And it says clearly that Hamas will never be party to any international agreement whatsoever. Like that's just they simply do not believe in that as a solution, a uh, workable solution for the for the Palestinian people. How do you think through that as well um, in terms of have there been opportunities missed? Who do we look to? you know, uh, as holding responsibility for that? And that's a very good question. And definitely the Palestinian leadership has a lot to be blamed for. But I think there's also lots of misconception about what was the mistake of the leadership uh, and, and what the mistakes of Hamas and, and the atrocities Hamas did. I think to understand, we need to understand that the Palestinians accepted to enter the peace process in 1993 from a political point of view, people would argue they had no choice, but still they entered this process. And they, with the international community, thought they will get a Palestinian state. And what happened over the past 30 years is that Israel actually used the peace process not to reduce or retreat from its colonial structure of domination 
or what many Palestinians call the apartheid reality. Israel inadvertently maybe created an apartheid reality. And we call it apartheid because Palestinians are fragmented in the West Bank and Gaza. I'm not, you know, they cannot, you know, people who are in Ramallah cannot get to Jerusalem, cannot get to the Hebron, cannot get to Nablus. We're talking about me living in Cambridge, not being able to come to, to you mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the river because there are so many checkpoints and bypass roads and uh, imagine that uh, b- you will be... A, you know, Israeli settlements. Yeah. Okay, So we're talking about this reality. What Palestinians saw is this has been entrenched, losing more and more land and blaming the Palestinians for every time they rebelled against the oppression. So if you're asking me, you know, what is the solution, if that's where we're going, or, or what is the... I find can difficult I, to blame the Palestinians. Yeah, can I just... Yeah, and for, sorry to interrupt, but... Um, I don't think that it's fair for me to ask anyone what is the solution now. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm, if that was if that's what it sounded like, I didn't mean that at all. But mostly trying to understand how the different layers, right? Because the, the Palestinian people are not a monolith. The Israeli people are not a monolith, and I, I find that in the media we tend to reduce people down to very flat and two dimensional caricatures, uh, and that's. That's not fair or just. So I was just trying to. I was just trying to ask you how you think through. Um, well, I, what I want to say yeah. in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Leila, go ahead. Yeah, just, just one second. Just Let me let Professor it, Farsa yeah. finish. It, it's important to understand that the Palestinian Authority and Fatah said, "Okay, we're going to peace, make peace with the Israelis by accepting the Oslo Agreement." And the international community said, "Let's have a two-state solution." But for many Palestinians, is that what did we get? Many Palestinians are saying, okay, you did peace for 30 years. What did you get out of it? You Mm. get out of it more and more fragmentation. Hamas is saying armed struggle is the only way that you could get a two-state solution because Hamas inadvertently said, you know, why would they accept Israel? Because those who did recognize Israel got nothing. Mm. From that perspective, they're coming. I just want to explain, you know. Leila El-Haddad, go ahead. And thank you for being patient, by the way. Yeah, no no problem. Just just a few things here um, to be made very clear. Oslo was simply a pretext for continued settlement expansion. There was never a mention in anywhere <clears throat> in the Oslo Accords, and you can look this up, of Palestinian statehood. I think this is a myth. Edward Said, the late Edward Said, has talked extensively um, about this. Um, and just on the point of, you know, I, I always like to emphasize this doesn't begin and end with Hamas, but if we're talking charters, the Likud charter of the current Netanyahu government calls for uh, uh, the destruction of any uh, concept idea of Palestinian statehood rejects the idea of Palestinian mm-hmm. statehood. And a sitting minister on that government has said that Palestinians have two choices. <clears throat> they either accept a life of subjugation under Israeli apartheid rule or they leave their own land. And this is a sitting minister. So let's you know be clear about that. I do want to backtrack just a little bit here because the overarching theme that drives all Israeli policy towards the Palestinians way before Oslo, through Oslo and to the current day is maximizing control over Palestinian land with as few Palestinians in that land that Israel controls as possible. Um, And in line with that is sort of the demographic threat, right? The Palestinian demographic threat. That's what drives Israeli policy. Um, And just one more point I want to, you know, talking about history and about I was a reporter in Gaza between the years of 2003 and 2007. I raised my young son there. I was there as the disengagement was happening uh, through the elections, through um, the beginning of the blockade. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, we tend to have a short-term memory here. But 
Before Hamas was on the scene, it was Fatah and the Palestinian Authority and Yasser Arafat that were the bogeymans of the hour, right? They were the ones being referred to by Ariel Sharon as Arafat was referred to as a, um, you know, a terrorist, and and um, and Israelis were referring to them as not as saying they did not have a partner for peace on the other side. So this is kind of you know cyclical and 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 continuous. And and then we had the. The disengagement happened, this unilateral process that was not coordinated with the Palestinian Authority, during which Israel dismantled its settlements, restructured its occupation, moved the settlements to the West Bank, and retained an iron fist on Gaza from the outside, and then began to effectively close Gaza off more than it had before from the outside world. This leads us up to um, the uh, beginning of the Palestinian elections in 2006, which, of course, the United States did not anticipate mm-hmm. the, the result there. And instead of, instead of allowing things to take their natural course and perhaps allowing Hamas as a political party to rule and maybe fail and maybe succeed, who knows, um, they meddled. The CIA meddled and siphoned millions of dollars in arms into Gaza in an attempt to overthrow them, which, of course, didn't work. And then a brutal blockade was imposed on the uh, 2.2 million people of Gaza, uh, which has been enduring for 17 years now. So, you know, there's a lot more to the story than um, Palestinian leadership has failed. You know, I I sort of take uh, um, offense at that statement because that's I don't think that's it at all. Do we have an effectual leadership? Yes. Do, do, in my opinion, does the Palestinian Authority simply act as a subcontractor of the Israeli occupation, the West Bank? Absolutely. I appreciate... um Again, the context really matters here, and I appreciate you walking through, uh, walking us through all that, Layla. But, you know, in my defense, I wasn't just saying let's pin all the blame for this, these decades of a political crisis, as Professor Farsak put it, you, you know, solely on Palestinian leadership. I am just trying to understand that, look, from the distance where I sit, and I acknowledge that it's a, it's a distance of miles history, people, etc. I, I can't say that um, that there's been universal, uh, uh, you know, flawless leadership through, you know, throughout throughout the, this process amongst any group. And that, that's and I just wanted to understand, again, how you all think through this. Um, Professor Farsak, I'll come back to you in a second, but I just want to give Philip a chance to, to, to chime in here. But Philip, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Magna. Uh... I just want to uh, backtrack a bit. I was identified as being uh, with the uh, U.S. Government Accountability Office, and uh, I just want to make sure that uh, I'm, you know, uh, for your speaker, for your listeners, that uh, I'm representing myself certainly, and Correct. not any yes. other party. And uh, yes, you know, uh, to this point, you know, every. Um, struggle for emancipation in history has had both. Uh, uh, um, a resistance, a nonviolent resistance component, and a violent uh, component as well. You mm-hmm. know, the uh, oppressed are uh, never, you know, uh, like angels. Uh, um, and uh, to demand, you know, certainly their oppressors uh, are the ones who visit far, far more violence uh, than, uh, you know, the, the people who are under occupation or under colonial, settler colonial regime or the like, you know, in Calcutta, uh, the airport of uh, Calcutta has is named after um, Chandra Bose, who, um, 
he he's very revered in in India uh, as well as Gandhi is, and uh, uh, and Chandra Bose called for armed resistance, uh, and sometimes some of his followers did. Um, uh, acts of violence against uh, uh, civilians, against uh, Brits. Um, so uh, the important thing is uh, in all these struggles, you have uh, situations where the people who follow a path like Gandhi's uh, might have the upper hand or uh, as in Algeria, it was more the violent uh, resistance. And um, it, in all of these struggles, as far as I know, from my knowledge of history, it's uh, the outside uh, pressure that often has a, a an important impact on which path mm. uh, wins. You know, mm -hmm. the, the submission is not an option for Palestinians. It's either... Um, uh, resistance uh, in through uh, nonviolent means or uh, armed resistance and uh, the world is really turning a blind eye to them when they practice nonviolent resistance uh, they you know they are attacked as being anti-semitic in uh, 30 some states in the United States will punish anybody who calls for um, uh, uh, boycott divestment and sanctions um Leaders in the Western world, you know, uh, have chimed in, some of them, like uh, a uh, prominent member of Congress has said, level Gaza. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling, the complicity yeah. of, of the Western world and the Western media, to a large extent, uh, yours excluded, <laughs> is, um, yeah. that, uh, well, you know, it's preponderance <coughs> of, uh, of uh, assisting and, uh, uh, you know, messaging the same messages that Israel, uh, the Israeli leadership is. Yeah. And it's not good for Israel in the long run, you know, for, for it to have fascists like Smotrich, who actually is proud of being called a uh, fascist uh, homophobe. By the way, he said, um, you know, we are going to um, uh, plaster all of the West Bank with uh, settlements, and the Palestinians have three choices, not two, as Leila said, one to accept, the other to, live, uh, to leave, be ethnically cleansed, basically, or to die. Mm -hmm. Are these the people that we are supporting? Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, you know, you know, I, um, Leila, I hear, I hear you there also, and I'll, I'll definitely let you come back in. Um, but Philip, it's interesting that you mentioned Chandra Bose because I, I know his history decently, and you're exactly right. He definitely, in, in terms of desi desiring to overthrow British colonial rule in India, he was not a, a pacifist. But again, life is very, very complicated because Bose was also closely aligned with Nazi Germany. He lived in Berlin for a while. He was under tutelage of uh, Nazi leadership there. Um, and uh, he then moved on to Imperial Japan uh, and supported uh, uh, Japan's imperial uh, ambitions in, in during the Second World War. So it's, I don't even know how to think through that, but people have many layers. We'll be back in just a moment. We have a lot more to discuss with our, um, our Palestinian-American roundtable today. So this is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty and Professor Leila Farsak. Pick up your, your thought. You wanted to respond to things yeah, that uh, Philip and Leila were saying. Go ahead. I think Leila really nailed it uh, very nicely by explaining that we are, um, what Israel's policy has always been to maximize land, control with minimize Palestinian and dehumanize the Palestinians. So, But I want to come back also to your point about where does the responsibility lie and the problem that whenever we want to put blame on victims and victimizers, who is a perpetrator or not. I don't want to go there, but I think it, it's helpful to think a little bit about uh, who has the most power in this conflict. And because that's the person who terms who define the terms of the engagement, whether we like it or not. Unfortunately, I'm, I cannot but put my hat as a political scientist. And as you know, the most powerful on that since 1948 has been Israel and the U.S. Uh, and they have a role to play because the most powerful is the one who can decide does he want to foster peace or want to foster violence. And unfortunately, what we've seen with Israeli policy since 1993, since the peace process, is that Israel has used this process to exactly, as Leila said, maximize Palestine taking Palestinian land and fragmenting the Palestinian. In other words, the, the past 30 years have been an attempt by Israel to finish the Palestinian question by fragmenting it, by saying that there are no Palestinians, there are some good Palestinians, there are bad Palestinians, and we're going to give them pieces here and there just to be quiet. But th- that has not worked because the Palestinians have rights. They are human beings like everybody else. And I think the United States has a very important role now to play in reminding Israel of this, but also has to take responsibility for the failure of the Camp David Accord in, in 2000, in, in how the disengagement from Gaza that Leila talked about took place, in not upholding the elections that according to U.S. representative on the ground in 2006, they said these were democratic elections. What do we do with the results that we don't like? So I think uh, the U.S. has an important role now to play in trying to stop this war and bring everybody around for a, a, an engagement on a peaceful solution. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's too early. I think right now we need to stop the war. Uh, we need to stop this genocide. But I think there's much blame to go on U.S. foreign policy and how it dealt with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm-hmm. I'm pausing because I'm just thinking about... Um, there was a moment in our Jewish-American roundtable where um, I asked our guests, the response even at that time coming from Israel was total devastation in Gaza, right? And it continues to be that. And, um, you know, I asked, honestly, what does Israel gain by doing by doing that? Because the world can see what is happening now. And it doesn't necessarily buy um, the security that uh, Israel says it seeks. Um, no matter how many members of Hamas you kill, you're also just, no matter how many members of Hamas Israel kills, um, it doesn't really effectively uh, eliminate the things that gave rise to Hamas's winning of the 2006 election, for example. 
In that moment, uh, one of our guests, uh, uh, Professor Ilan Troen, who spoke to us from Israel, um, and just to remind folks, his daughter and son-in-law were killed by Hamas on October 7th, and he happened to be on the phone with his daughter as she and her husband were being killed. Professor Troen answered my question in this way. He instead posed a question to Palestinians, uh, particularly those in Gaza. And I want to play that question back to you. And here's what he said. Is there not something that Palestinians in Gaza can do to free themselves of this murderous, abhorrent, aberrant form of Islamic political organization that throughout the PA and is a dictatorial, fascistic, and you can use all the other words that come with that, organization. Uh, are they not also victims of Hamas? Mm. And the question is, can they do something? And if they can't do anything, what then are we to do to suspend the conflict until Hamas fires at us again from civilian areas, and then to be accused of abusing human rights when we merely try to defend our families, our children, our loved ones, and the places in which we live. And we got many responses to that question from Palestinian Americans who called us. Here are a couple. You have this professor talking about Hamas this, Hamas that, but he fails to talk about the 75 years of brutal occupation that the Palestinian people have had to endure underneath the boots of the Israeli forces. Uh, why doesn't nobody talk about that? One clear solution is for Israel to work at Gaza, give them their independence, give them their freedom, give them the ability to move anywhere, and then there won't be Hamas. The reason why all this is happening is because of the occupation. Leila El-Haddad, I can... Um practically feel you wanting to reach through the radio, but what's your, what, what's your answer to the professor's question? Oh, you know, in, um, in the words of Edward Said, blaming the victim, Golda Meir famously said, I will never forgive the Palestinians for forcing us to kill their children. And that kind of sums it up. The, the burden here is not on the oppressed and the occupied. The burden is on the occupier. I mean, when has overwhelming military might and an oppressive, brutal apartheid regime ever succeeded at, you know, eliminating, um, you know, whatever you want to call it? When has it ever um, made that state more secure? And when has it ever resulted in, you know, freedom and, and justice and all the things that um, the your um, Israeli guest was referring to? Um, walls and barriers and bombardment and starvation and genocide will never make Israel more secure. If that's indeed the the objective and the goal, you know, we all, in the end of the day, are human beings, right, who have children and families, and um, and we want to live lives of dignity and freedom and go about our lives, you know, Palestinians just like anyone else. That cannot be achieved through military might and pummeling the civilian population into submission to the point where they will then say, okay, yeah, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, uh, overthrow Hamas or w whatever the case may be. Again, I, I just want to emphasize this doesn't begin and end with them. They mm -hmm. weren't on the picture before 1987. They weren't even a dominant political force until the early 2000s. So we should make no mistake about they, it just happens to be the scapegoat that the Israelis need now. But that's not really um, at the heart of the problem. Um, 
more recently, you know, it's a blockade whose stated aims, I mean, to be clear, Gaza, the situation wrought upon Gaza was brought upon it deliberately by design, not by accident. Mm -hmm. The stated aims of the blockade by the Israelis were to deprive the Palestinians of the uh, of the ability to prosper and rebuild. And in the words of the, the Dove Wideglass who designed this policy, to keep them always on the brink of collapse, just a, above the point of starvation. And then you're, you have the audacity to come and say, why aren't, why aren't the Palestinians blaming Hamas and why aren't they doing more to... I mean, I, I really have no words. I don't know what else to say. Mm. Well, Philip, let me follow up with that, uh, with this thought. Um, you know, there hasn't been an election in Gaza since Hamas did win that surprise election in, in, in 2006. So again, I'm not victim blaming here, but I, 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 this constant question is popping into my head, you know, hearing about the horrors that Layla's family is experiencing right now in Gaza. And you talked about, you know, the destruction of the church and the ongoing death that's, that's happening there. I hate to say it, but was that somewhat predictable as the response Israel was going to have, um, given how surprised it was by uh, Hamas's successful attack? So my question is, for the Palestinian people in Gaza who are suffering the brutality of the bombings right now, I mean, Hamas has gained nothing for them. Has it? I cannot see anything that Hamas's decision to attack Israel in the way it did. I can't see any way in which that has benefited um, the the Palestinian people in Gaza. And I and I point that out and I ask this because again, not victim blaming, but um, is there nothing? Not at this moment, okay, not at this moment because of the violence that is occur- that's occurring. But is there nothing that can be done? No. Uh, 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 a way to actuate the desires of the Palestinian people not to have leadership that whose every action um, leads to a counteraction from Israel that leads more to more death. Philip, I, I'm sorry for, for my very confusing question, but I, it's hard for me to think through no, this way. Yeah, uh, go ahead. I, no, I, I, it's, it's a fair question. And uh, I think really it goes back to uh, the point that I made earlier about uh, how, you know, emancipation, you know, can be, uh, can follow one of two paths, violence uh, or nonviolence. And in every situation where the uh, oppressing uh, regime, the colonial regime, say in Algeria, where the the colonial regime, uh, um, you know, exercised extreme, extreme violence, you know, it's very traumatizing Mm -hmm. and it is bound to have a reaction that is also violent. You know, the people who went into Israel uh, on October 7th, the Hamas fighters and actually also a lot of civilians, you know, they were traumatized by 75 years of uh, of um, Nakba, of uh, 56 years of uh, occupation, direct occupation, and and by 17 years of a brutal, brutal siege. You know, um, you know. I, I just want to uh, quote what. Uh, uh, so, so they're traumatized. They're, they are people who have been. You know, some of these fighters were people who lost family members, close family members who saw their mother or father or brother shredded to pieces or um, the like. Uh, so so this is after the 2015 um, uh, attack on Gaza. 
the Save the Children um, did a survey of um, of, a ch- of the children in Gaza, and 75% of the children reported uh, bedwetting. You know, these are people, you know, these are the people who went into Gaza, into Israel. They're traumatized people. And just as Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King in his um, letter from a Birmingham jail said, look, you know, you you increase the pressure on us and there's going to be more violence. Uh, and it, it's obviously not good for, for the future of anybody in the region including the Israelis to have this is going to breed more and more resentment more and more rage and not everybody is going to react to it with in a charitable way in a in an enlightened way in an unviolent way there are going to be um, uh, acts I you know it's like asking you know I want to return the question to professor Cohen is it why yeah. is it that the Israelis allow the fascists like Smotrich and Ben Gavir, uh, why are they electing them? Yeah, uh, to that, yeah, I'd like also to to go back to this question as, uh, you know, this uh, blaming the victim or or asking, let's engage with this question, how can the Palestinians free themselves of Hamas? I, I, I mean, it's as Leila clearly said, it, you need to end the occupation. You can, the way to end uh, Hamas is, is, or any any violent resistance, any uh, is to end the occupation. Uh, that's something Israel is not does not seem interested in doing, and this is why we are in a serious problem. Because you might eliminate Hamas right now. I mean, the Israel you forget, but in 1992, Israel went to war in Lebanon to eliminate the PLO and the PLO. Which, and Fatah were considered terrorist organization. And it nearly succeeded. You know, it put Beirut at the time, one of the most important Arab cities, under siege for 88 days. I, I mean, I can't, for me, it's like a PTSD I, 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 because I, relived, I lived that war. So for me, it's like, is this what's going to happen again? Mm. Again, Palestinian resistance was called terrorist. You know, they were expelled. Israel thought it eliminated the Palestinian question. It thought it eliminated the Palestinian question in 1948 when it expelled two-thirds of the population. And what do you see? Palestinians ba- come back and say, we have rights. This is our land. We want freedom. We don't want anybody to die. We want freedom. How to do it? is what tools you have. As again, during the Oslo process, Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas said non-violence, non-violence. Non-violence gave nothing, actually. Non-violence, according to Hamas and many people, brought more dispossession, more displacement, more settlements, more killing. Right now, in West Bank, over this past two weeks, 1,000 Palestinians were arrested. 95 Palestinians were killed. So, And there is no Hamas there. Uh, settler violence is unrestrained. So the, the problem, if it's on Israel to end this war now, and it's on Israel to keep its citizens safe, by ending the siege, not maintaining it, by fra- not by fragmenting Palestinians, because maybe they'll succeed in eliminating Hamas, but you can be sure in 20 years' time something else is going to come. I mean, because Palestinians, you, the reality is Israel controls a pop today, a population of 14 millions. Seven million of them are Jewish citizens with rights, and seven millions are Palestinians, which are div- dispersed into four areas. The West Bank is Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And those 7 million Palestinians are being attacked in different ways, are being mm. deprived, are being discriminated against, are being dehumanized. And this is what needs now 
to stop. And I'm hoping the U.S. administration will do something about it because we are at a at a inflection point. Yeah, I will admit to all three of you that um, this issue and the reality that Palest- the Palestinian people have been living with, and also um, Israelis as well, and I'm talking about the people, not leadership, is. Uh, larger and more complex uh, than my ability to navigate a satisfactory conversation. I just want to admit that. Because it sounds like um, that right now we're, we're just facing the continuation of a cycle of, you know, with the asymmetric power in still in mind of a cycle of trauma, t- traumatized people continuing to traumatize each other. But, but Megna, it is actually much simpler. It's about maintaining the humanity of everybody. This land can take us all can take the 7 million Palestinians, 7 million Jews, we can all live in peace, but we need to live by respecting our humanity and protecting the equality of everybody to life and freedom. That's it's simple. It's much, not as complicated as you think. Well, Leila Farzak, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And Philip Farah, uh, economist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, not speaking for the GAO. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Agna. And Leila El-Haddad, an award-winning Palestinian author, social activist, and journalist. Leila, it's been a great honor to speak with you. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.